Hi, I'm Helen Sullivan and you're listening to Walkley Talks. Story structure is one of the fundamentals of journalism. How do we get people interested in a story? And how do we keep them there? Caroline Overington, two-time winner of the Walkley Award for Investigative Journalism, moderates this discussion on how journalists are adapting their storytelling techniques in this time of change. Joining her on the panel is Dan Box, national crime reporter for The Australian, Aaron Glantz, senior reporter for Reveal, Cara Meldrum-Hanna, investigative reporter for Four Corners and Gold Walkley Award winner, and Walkley Documentary Award winner, Ivan Omani. When I was a, a pup, a journo, uh, growing up in journalism, that's what you had. You had journalists who worked for newspapers, who were print journalists, and you had journalists who worked for TV and radio, who were reporters for TV and radio. But those lines have completely blurred, and that is what we're here to talk to you about today. The idea of structuring, structuring a story in the new and much more dynamic media landscape. I I've, don't feel I need to introduce all of them, but clearly they, they are the cream of Australia's investigative reporters sitting here on the panel. But they, and, and we have a guest as well from California, Aaron. Um, and they have all been involved in breaking down some of the barriers that used to exist between print and radio and TV, between uh, public interest journalism and commercial uh, media organisations. And I think that their experiences are going to be extremely valuable in talking to us about, I mean, how we go forth in this new landscape. Now, I know from hosting previous panels that the magic happens when the panellists um, interact with each other, so please feel free to do so. And I've been asked to keep them on a pretty tight leash, which I will attempt <coughs> to do. So I think, I, actually, Aaron, since you're the guest here, um, I'll start with you. You're a reporter at Reveal. Um, now, Aaron's reporting has sparked uh, dozens of congressional inquiries um, and indeed criminal probes, including by the FBI. Um, some of his most important work, if you get an opportunity to see it online, um, involves the treatment of US soldiers after they have returned from the battlefield. And it is, uh, to watch it, some of the most harrowing um, and, uh, and highly emotional material that I've come across for a long time, and yet not even it's not done in a mawkish way, it's not done in a sentimental way, it's done in a very honest and clear and thoughtful way. It was extremely impressive and it was a, a real gift to me to be able to preview it before I came here. I wanted to ask you how long you've been a journalist and, and what kind of journalist you've been over that time and whether you're experiencing a similar disruption in the US that we are experiencing here in terms of how to structure a story in this new age. Um, so I've been a reporter for about 20 years. I, I got started in the mid-90s. I dropped out of college to be a journalist. I know there's a lot of student journalists here, so journalism is one of the professions where uh, it's very much rewarded on your accomplishments. Uh, and around the time of the beginning of the war in Iraq in 2003, I went overseas as an unembedded journalist. It, it seemed ridiculous to me that nobody was covering the stories of 25 million Iraqi people who were going to be impacted by this war. And so when I came home, when I, I no longer felt comfortable doing that work in Iraq, and I began focusing on US military veterans, um, I thought it was very important that they be covered like any other community of people uh, coming uh, in our community. Uh, they're not the other, right? They're our neighbors. And so I very much tried to position my coverage as something that was happening in our communities. Uh, rather than something that's far away, because the war felt very far away uh, to most Americans. But who do you do your reporting for? The organisations for which you work are, are interesting, I think, to us as Australians. We don't have organisations like that. Well, the Centre for Investigative Reporting is a not-for-profit, so it's not government. 
Uh, it's not corporate, although we work with both uh, public and uh, corporate partners to get the stories out. So, uh, you know, in this panel on storytelling and how to grab an audience, uh, one of the things that I believe very strongly is that the audiences in America at least, and, and I see that here as well, have become so segmented that the idea that you're gonna reach everyone by putting a story even on the most high profile television program uh, or in most uh, newspapers in the country and reach you know, a large portion of people is gone, right? Unless you work for the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, even if you work for CBS News now, uh, you're just gonna reach a certain demographic. So where is your work published then? So we produce a, a podcast which goes out every week on more than 400 uh, public radio stations. That's our flagship program. But we also work in collaboration with uh, national and regional newspapers, uh, with television stations, uh, et cetera. So when I published um, the uh, story on veterans who were being overprescribed narcotics and dying of overdoses at an alarming rate, and it got that congressional action and prosecutions that you were talking about, that story appeared on the PBS NewsHour, our flagship public television program. It appeared on our national public radio program. It also appeared in regional newspapers in the most hard-hit communities across the country. So people said, oh, this is something that's happening here in Roseburg, Oregon, or Reno, Nevada, or Charleston, West Virginia, or Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is something that matters to us. And then people in those communities started to call their congresspeople and say, hey, what's going on here? How come you're letting people die in the hospitals in our communities? And, and do you sell it to them or you just give it to them? Yeah, so the uh, economics of it are fraught. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, luckily, uh, I'm a journalist uh, and I'm not in charge of that, but it's an ongoing struggle you know, for the management. Uh, we do, you know, try to make money by selling things, but primarily we're getting money from, uh, you know, members of the public, uh, from philanthropic foundations, uh, and, and things like that. And, and now with our podcast, uh, we're leveraging it with uh, advertising. I see, okay. Yeah. Now, Caro, your experience is obviously completely um, different. I mean, Caro is going to be known to all of you as a reporter with ABC uh, TV's Four Corners program. Um, she won the Gold Walkley for a stunning report on the greyhound racing industry. She has actually been nominated for a Walkley 12 times. And I, and I think no one will ever forget the gut-wrenching work that she did on the Dondale Juvenile Detention Centre. In my view, um, she's the jewel in the ABC's extraordinary crown. And, and Oh, true. And given the talent over there, I, I know that I'm, saying I'm that... I'm known as the mongrel. I'm not... not <laughs> <much of a laughs> um, well, you work in long-form TV current affairs. Now, that's mm. a very traditional, old-style old yep. kind of journalism. So what, what are you doing to adapt your storytelling to this new millennium? Well, there's only so much you can do as one person, I've realised. Uh, you need to have a team around you that's moving with you, I think, to try and adapt. Now, certainly at Four Corners, it's, a, it's an old, old program. Old is fine, is great, is good. It's hard to, particularly at the ABC, to shake that up and, and freshen that up and make it new. But, I mean, we, it's been invigorated with a new team of digital producers, which are really helping us. What we've learned is we have to get the story out before we go to air, is the first thing. We, we have to push out clips, videos, uh, news stories before it even hits Monday night, which 
you know, several years ago, you would never think of doing that, of rolling you out material. You would keep your story as exclusive Absolutely. as you could, knowing that people guarded. were coming to your channel and at a certain time. Yeah, that's right. And, and so you keep it all in here, put it out on, on Monday night, but people just aren't tuning in anymore on Monday night. People aren't going home and turning on ABC or Channel 10, as we all know. That's, those days are gone. The other thing I've, I have certainly learnt and I have tried to really put in every story I report is I ask myself, why is anyone going to watch this? Mm -hmm. Why will someone care? I have to make someone care. You've got to humanise it. For, for everyone, and you can you can hu you humanise that through I think just human beings, people connect with that. Um, so that is that is what what I go for. Really and think about the humanity of things in your subjects. And when you're, um, do you have any uh, information available to you on how many people watch your program we do, at the traditional yes. time, and how yes. many catch up on iView? What is what is the breakdown like? So usually, you know, on these sort of programs on prime time on television, it's a, there is a bit of an obsession with ratings. And I'd say probably, you know, ten years ago, you would really judge the merit and the value and the success of a program on its ratings yeah. on that night. Yeah, mm. that's gone now. So we have access to the ratings and, that, and ratings across the board. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have just disappeared overnight, really, with on-demand television. You watch whatever you want to watch whenever you watch, whenever you want to watch it and catch up. So that's down. But what we've seen is there is a huge, there is a, not a huge, I wouldn't say that, that's an exaggeration, a steady increase in iView, people coming to watch it after it's aired. We find that when there's lots of, oh my gosh, did you see this on Monday night? There's a huge push on social media after the Monday night broadcast on Four Corners, people come and watch it. And there's more of an onus on us, I think, as reporters now to keep your story going mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. the point of broadcast. You have to keep reporting. You've got to roll out more stories to keep the pressure up and, to, and you, you also drag more people in to watch it. With that Don Dale story, actually, this, it, that was amazing. I mean, I, we thought the ratings were going to be shocking. Isn't it? It's crazy even that we even think about ratings. <coughs> but... You do, um, with television, I'm not going to lie. Uh, and look, the ratings were, were fine. But the, the reach of that program, it mm. was astonishing. And that, this isn't because of me. And I, I don't think a great program is because of the journalist or the reporter. If you think that, I, I don't think you're a great journalist. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about your subjects. It's their story, not ours. But the reach was incredible. Within, I think it was six or eight weeks, that Dondale program, you know, here in Australia, about in the Northern Territory, a tiny little place, so far away from the rest of the world, that had 156 million reach within eight weeks. It just went all over the place, all over the world. And so, you know, it, you know, you can make a story in a very small place and go, that can reach and very do broadly. you take advantage of, of the fact now that the ABC, for example, has a website to do to add value by, for example, uploading documents that are key to your story or long-form interviews to give the, the uh, viewer or reader on the website a, a richer experience? Well, we used to do that under our previous executive producer. We put, would publish a wealth of material on the Four Corners website. Um, now we've really actually scaled that back. And why is that? What, what prompts that decision? Not too sure. I think it's probably the new leadership. I, I'm not sure why. I think it's people tune into the program and you get what you get there. I, I, can't, I actually can't answer that question fully. But 
we release now a lot of other material before the program anyway. Before. So there's lots circulating already. I mean, for that Dondale program, we released the, that stunning clip of the boy in the chair, Dylan Voller with the hood, with the hood on. And when that did, just when did you release that? Gangbusters. I think we released that on the... It was around Monday on midday, I think. So Monday before the program went to air. That and can you tell immediately from the response on Twitter or Facebook, this is going to be a blockbuster? Yes. Yep. You can. Which is super interesting, but also... <laughs> When you have a program coming up on Monday night and you've released clips and they're, you know, 2,000 views, you think, oh, we're gonna, this is it. no one's going to watch this. Uh, but it can, still, it can still have a long tail, as you It said. could, yeah, afterwards. <laughs> you, you work a bit harder. Okay. Yeah. Now, Dan Box, I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to share an office with Dan Box and I, he, he's just absolutely outstanding. I'm, I'm sure that most of you have seen, or sorry, have heard um, the pod podcast known as Barraville. But if you haven't, it is the most extraordinary look at a, a case of three Indigenous children, uh, all of whom were murdered. There are no question that they were, mur they were murdered. In, in one particular case, the little girl, her clothes were found bagged up in a river. So this is not accidental deaths. There's no doubt about it. They were all from the same street. And there has never been justice delivered to their families. And the story had been pecked at on the mm. edges and it had been turned over a few times by a few different people. But Dan found a unique and compelling way to tell that story, which just blew the lid off it and has led to um, an inquiry and now to a possible retrial of a man who is considered a suspect in the case. And I'm interested, Dan, that you didn't do it as a print journalist. You work for a newspaper, but you yeah. didn't do it in feature articles or a magazine, you did it with audio. Well, Why? The thing is, I did do it for the newspaper, <laughs> uh, but it, nobody noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, I mean, as you said, look, I wasn't the first person to report on the Barrable murders by any stretch. Four Corners did it years ago and did it really well. The ABC had done it previously, but all of those reports had kind of fallen into the silence that surrounded the case. And it was a silence from the whole establishment, the judiciary, the, the, the legislature, everyone kind of just seemed prepared to let this one go. And it was actually the homicide cop leading the case who came to me and said, look, you have to have a look at this. And it was three dead kids, so yeah, you do. And I, I started doing it as a print reporter for the paper. And you know, the bosses were good, they backed me. And usually I'd get the odd story on the bottom of page two, which is where we put things that are boring but important. <laughs> and... Corrections. Yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> next, next to the box where we apologise for Next to the old bits under the corrections. <laughs> and the thing was, it just didn't work. But then I was reporting on, on the latest in the long line of disappointments those kids' families have got in their attempt to get some kind of justice. And the difference was, I was working with a photographer who filmed their reaction. Mm. So the government had come and said, essentially, no, we're not going to do anything with this case. And the photographer filmed the families, screaming with emotion and fury and sorrow. And I got, I got the clip from the photographer, and I sent it on to our web team, because mm. I thought they might put it online. And then I watched the web team's reaction, because it had gone from a story that no one on the paper really probably noticed I was doing, mm. to one where the web team were going, good God, look at this. Mm. This is a big deal. We, what on earth is going on? Because you could see the emotion in their voices 
And that was the point when I thought, all right, well, we need to, mm. we need to tell this story in their own words, and we need to have the people involved. We need to put them back in charge of the story. Because the thing with them, so we did a podcast, which is, and the thing with a podcast or with radio is you can hear the emotion. So you can hear that little catch in the throat when someone's trying not to cry, or you can hear it when they are crying and they go completely to water. And in audio, it's incredibly powerful and incredibly evocative. It's intimate. Yeah, it is. Mm. It is. And it fires the imagination. And putting, putting the people involved in charge of the story made the difference. And of course, this was something that um, there, there has since been a whole range of podcasts released by a range of different media organisations, including mm. Fairfax, which is also traditionally a print media company. Mm. But I'm wondering, when you first went to the editor-in-chief, I mean, I've spoken to Paul Whitaker about this, and he said that Dan left quite sneakily, I think, a tape on his desk and said, oh, just have a listen to this. And Paul pressed the button intending to listen for a few minutes before rushing into conference and four hours later was still there spellbound by exactly that, that response that to the families. Well, perhaps I'm not meant to tell you, but did you, did you, uh, was it difficult to convince a, tradition, a traditionally print company to take on an audio project? No, again, because I don't think they noticed. Um, <laughs> the thing about a daily newspaper is that everyone is focused on the next day's news to the exclusion of pretty much everything else. And so when I came up with this idea for a, a podcast, I think I went to the editor, John Lehman, and I said, I want to do a podcast. And he went, yeah, 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 that sounds great. Because he, <laughs> he was concentrating on the next day's front page. And I may have mentioned it to Paul Whitaker, who has championed podcasts in the past on the Daily Telegraph. And he went, yeah, 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 that's great. And he was looking at the front page for tomorrow's news. <laughs> and then basically no one paid any attention. And so the producer and I, we were kind of left alone to work on it. I was given a day a week, which didn't often happen because I had to do the next day's front page. And we just kind of made it on our own time, but nobody heard it until it was done. Yeah. Oh, which was awesome. so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that will, that will almost certainly never happen yeah. again. Yeah. Um, now, Ivan Omani, too many awards to count, but received the, the 2016 Australian Directors Guild Award, the Walkley Documentary Award, the Australian Academy of Cinema Television Award, the Amnesty International Media Award. <laughs> I could go on, but mainly for the program that you would have seen on the ABC about domestic violence, which was called Hitting Home. And he's also worked on Go Back to Where You Came From for the SBS. But I wanted to talk to him about um, what I think is a unique collaboration and maybe an opportunity for those of you who are looking for new ways to fund your journalism, new ways to tell your story, between Screen Australia, which is essentially a filmmaking <coughs> body, and The Australian, which is a, a private company owned by the News Corporation, a private newspaper owned by the News Corporation, to produce a 60-minute documentary on the subject of Zach Grieve. Now, some of you will have seen a little bit of that. It's about a man who has been jailed for 20 years in the Northern Territory for a murder that he did not physically commit. And even the judge, even the judge in that trial has said that he believes that there was a miscarriage of justice. I'm fascinated to know how you got such a collaboration off the ground. Well, it's interesting because that, that collaboration, um, for ones, didn't start with the story. It started with me listening to Dan's podcast and having a very similar uh, reaction and going, wow, this is really great stuff. And it's right up there with this American Life, which was my favourite radio show in America, and the guys who then produced Serial and S-Town and all of that stuff. And um, one of the things I was thinking is, OK, 
okay, well, you know, there are less and less outlets for documentary filmmakers to, to, to get, well, not less and less, but it's harder and harder to get the money and the financing. And, um, you know, the ABC has moved to doing lots and lots of formatted shows. So they buy in a format from the UK, they mm. adapt it to the Australian mm. market, and then you've got a show on, mm. on bullying or a, a revolution school, or then you've got this or that, or SBS does Look Me in the Eye or Dating Naked. They're all foreign formats. So it is actually uh, harder and harder to pitch original material. Yeah, and especially, mm. And especially if they're not formatted. If you just mm. want to do really good reporter-led or um, observational documentaries. So like a one-issue story like this, yeah. or one story about one man yeah. in one prison cell, that's tough to get funding for. It's really, really tough. And, you know, we're lucky in that with, with, with the small production company that I run that we work with really good people. So we can get a two-hour series on domestic violence off the ground because Sarah fronts it. Um, you know, and that's and, a collaboration and, you did with the ABC? With the ABC, that's right. And, um, and you know, if you, if you take subjects that, that, that are commercial in nature, like last year we did a, a film, a documentary film on the making of Matilda the Musical with Tim Minchin. So it's like, Tim Minchin, oh yeah, we'll commission that. And this year we're doing a behind-the-scenes musical on the making of Muriel's Wedding the Musical. And like, yeah, that, that stuff so still gets commissioned in our heart. We, we, so when you we say do, they, so you go to Screen Australia and you say, this is the proposal, these are the people who will be involved, and they either red-light it or green-light it. If, you've, uh, if you're an independent producer and you have an idea, you, you tend to first go to a television channel and see if they like it. And if they like it, you then go to Screen Australia or Screen New South Wales, but Screen Australia is where the money is. <laughs> And then you try to work out your finance plan. You often have to find a distributor as well. You might have to find an international co-production partner to get to the budgets that you need. But, you know, in our little business, we, we basically do musicals and misery. Um, we do, we, we, you know, we do, we do uh, a happy film. It's kind of become a, a bit of a strategy to keep ourselves sane because our backgrounds are in journalism and current affairs is where our heart is. But I've also realised that if you do uh, 18 months of hitting home, which is how long it took to produce that series with Sarah, that, you know, you start to get all these signs of not exactly vicarious trauma, but you do really, you know, you, you kind of start to lose the plot a bit. And you need something else, or at least mm. I do. I need something else. So within our company, we then make sure that we also do something much happier. In that case, Matilda, the, the musical with Tim. Uh, and this year, Muriel's Wedding, and next year we'll be doing, uh, hopefully, uh, a feature documentary on Bangara, but we'll also probably be doing some mass massacre somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So, and um, and how, much, how much does something like Zach, Green and the, uh, Zach Grieve and the Queen, how much does that cost? So the budget for that, I don't mind telling you because it's, you know, publicly funded. So the budget for that was $450,000. And what, and do, that, what and do you get for that? Well, what do you get for that is, you mean in terms of what does that What does that, that cover? Okay, so um, that gives you um, roughly 16 to 20 weeks. It gives you about... Of filming time? Uh, of research, filming and editing. So it gives you about, say, four to five weeks in pre-production, six weeks in the field and another six to seven weeks of editing time. Uh, that pays for the editors, the camera people, uh, the insurance, the travel, the transport, the, the colour grading, the sound mixers, uh, dance time, my time, uh, an executive producer, 
uh, a researcher, uh, you, you name it. It, 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 it. it looks like a lot of money, it sounds like a lot of money, and it goes, no. it melts like snow before if, the sun. If you didn't know that investigative journalism is expensive, I think that's a really yeah. good Very example expensive. of how many yeah. people yeah. are involved. So, um, so just a very on, quick please. answer. So we took that project to the Australian. I, I went to Dan, met Dan. And I, I told him it wouldn't happen. You did? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I said Why was, did you think that? Because newspapers don't have any money. Yeah. And... I said there's, uh, there's absolutely no way we can afford, not the whole contribution, yeah. um, but even the, the proportion of it that Ivan was suggesting. And I said, that, that cannot happen. And he went away and made it happen. And I was well, impressed because, with that. Because newspapers do But he didn't resources. get any money out of us. <laughs> no, it's, it's, well, the Australian... <laughs> no, yeah. The, uh, yeah, the Australian put up a small amount of money <laughs> and it put up my time. Which, well, there's that. I mean, think about this for a yeah. paper which is always thinking about tomorrow's stories, to take one of your reporters and say, right, you're basically off the news desk for three months, is actually, I've never seen it happen in the Australian's history. The, just, the bravery behind that decision for them was massive. Yeah, it was good. Because all kinds of crimes happened in that time that I should have been covering. Yeah. And they didn't bother me. They let me do this project. Yeah. So it, was, it took a bit. Now, I, I have promise that I'm going to give you questions, and I, and yeah. I am. I just want, I, I think that the, the beauty of every person sitting on the panel and the, of the work of theirs that I have seen is their ability to grab you. And I'm wondering, they, they do it so quickly and so beautifully, mm. and you're immediately caught, and you can't, you, they, you, they don't let you go until you, they're finished telling you what you have to know about this story. And I'm wondering if each of you could Explain to us, when you go out into the field, are you looking for that one shot all the time, thinking that is it, that is the hook that's going to get people in? Or does it come organically and then become the way in? Caro, you can start. Mm. Uh, I found that when I go out and I think, and I'm thinking, that's the, that's the image I've got in my mind, we're going to get that, that never happens. So. I absolutely let it happen organically. And I'll just tell a really quick, super, super quick story Please about do. this. Um, I will always endeavour to open the program with an arresting image, and I will always try and tell a story, a narrative. I, I, I sit down, everyone, I'm going to tell you a story and take you in. I was lucky to be mentored by someone at the ABC, Deb Masters, who's the most incredible producer. And uh, we were making a program, it's usually the programs you're proud of that actually didn't get a huge amount of coverage or uh, views or whatever, but this was called The Boy with the Henna Tattoo and it was one of the first Four Corners programs I made and it was inside a pedophile ring and the police's search for this Australian boy and to get him to, to remove him and get him to safety. Now, during this quite traumatic process of gathering the evidence and material, flying around the world, tracking down people, the perpetrators, we managed to get hold of this incredible home videos, this just in hours and hours of material of this little boy growing up. His pedophile parents documented and recorded his every move to catalogue this for this huge ring. And we had this one video, and it was the earliest video of this little boy, and he was playing with a beetle on his arm. And it was something I kept watching while I was trying to script this program, how am I going to start it? And Deb Masters came in and she said, well, there it is. That is your opening image, that this pure, innocent moment of a boy playing with a lady beetle on his arm. And he was, wasn't even two yet, but his parents were having sex with him and selling him for sex. And it was just that exact line. It is impossible to imagine that the boy you're seeing right here 
is being sold for sex to men around the world. And it just captured it was right there. everyone. Yeah. What about you, Aaron? What do you look for? I think just... But it was bold. The, yeah, at the end, the last comment there, I always want to start at the heart of the story. Yes. I, I don't... I mean, I know that with podcasting and, and these extreme long forms that we're now emerging, there's a temptation to kind of, like, wait to give it away. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I always feel like you just got to go right in it. And I don't go out looking for my best piece of tape, but I always lead with my best piece of tape. After my report, I say, what's the... I mean, I, 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 I mean, I've noticed this with my stories, like even the most high-impact stories, if there's something that's like halfway through, half the audience missed it, right? right. Mm -hmm. Even, yeah. on, the best, even mm -hmm. on the best stuff that I've done with the highest impact, mm -hmm. things that are in the second half of the story, I'll often pick people, you know, you should really investigate this. I'll say, I actually did. It was in that <laughs> was story. That? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't minutes. you remember that? Yeah. You cited my story before Congress, and you don't remember that? Anyway. Uh, but, but the... Um, but I think that's very important. Um, and it could be anything. It could be anything, as long as it takes you straight in. What, yeah. about, what about you, Dan? I can only agree with what these guys have said. And, and Caro's point's absolutely right. Uh, when I'm writing for the paper, if, I, if I've gone out and done, say, a feature length, you go out and you do all your research, and then you come back, and I cannot start until I know what that first image is, until I know what the, the equivalent of the boy playing with the, the beetle on his arm. It's not until I've got that image which comes from the heart of the story that I can then go on and, and build the rest. You can't, you can't do the bulk of it and then put the top on? No. no. I, I mean, I can kind of sketch it out in, in like, you know, con blocked, concrete block terms, but in, in terms of the right through how I'm going to tell the story, mm -hmm. until I've got that image which sums everything up, I cannot move past that. Or watch, mm. I have to watch every single tape, every rush, listen to every grab, go through every interview too. Until you've got that. that. Yeah. Do you have a? Well, I think if you if you work in, in long form, uh, especially in, in in video, if you you know aspire to make documentaries, I think you have to embrace the notion that you will always make three films. You know, you you make the film that you propose and that you write out and and that you get funded. Then you get into the field and then you make the film that you shoot, which is usually fairly different from what you had in mind. And then when you get back to the edit and you get a really good editor looking at your rushes, uh, it gives you a fresh perspective on what you have and you may yet again build an entirely different film. And that scared the shit out of me when I was younger. And now I really embrace it. I love the idea with documentary that what we put on air is never quite what we imagined it would be. Mm -hmm. When we went, when, when Dan and I went to Catherine to make uh, The Queen and Zach Grieve, we, for instance, uh, were still hoping that we would get access to, um, uh, to the prison system. And, uh, you know, for reasons we... we Think Caro uh, Caro would be, would be well acquainted with. They're not, they're not too hot on, on, on us at the moment. Um, snooping around prisons. And, uh, and, and, you know, so it's very, very hot. Plus the fact that this particular kid was convicted for a murder and it's incredibly hard to get mm. access to somebody who's in jail for murder. But um, uh, we were still hoping, then it turned out that there was no chance in hell that we're going to talk to Zach. And then one afternoon, mm -hmm. uh, Dan is visiting uh, with Aaron Smith, with our cameraman. I was doing some other stuff around town. Dan said, I'm just gonna go ahead and say hi to the family that were here. And they sit down and Zach calls his mum unprompted. And she immediately puts it on speakerphone. And you're like, well, 
we were, it, it solved a huge issue for us because how do you get people to care about a kid who's in jail, who you can't see? There are barely any photographs of him. The family didn't have any video. He just, he, you have to make him come alive for people to care. And there he was making this phone call to his mom. Dan had to make a quick decision about whether to interview him or not, decided not to because he didn't want to get Zach into trouble because we had been told not to talk to him. So there's this, all this quick on your, on your, you know, thinking on, on your, what's the expression? On your feet. On your feet, sorry. We only had 30 minutes and four people on the panel and I could talk to them all day. They are the most extraordinary reporters Australia has produced and we have been honoured with the presence of, of Aaron from California as well. Please thank our panel. Thank you. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you like this podcast, there are three things you can do to help us. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com forward slash subscribe. Rate us on iTunes or send us a few dollars to keep it going at walkleys.com forward slash donate. This podcast was produced with help from freelance journalist and fabulous intern Courtney Hunter in Sydney, Australia. Thanks for listening.